Hello, and welcome to Why Insurers Do ERM, the 19th episode in the Crossing Thin Ice podcast series brought to you by Actuarial Risk Management. My name is Max Rudolph, and as always, I'm joined by Dave Ingram. There are many ERM components, and Dave created a survey to see how insurers were prioritizing their own ERM program. Comparing your thoughts against the group can give you ideas for your own program going forward. By the way, nothing in today's podcast is intended to be investment advice. We are here to provide educational material on ERM topics without getting lost in the weeds. We hope that you will also take advantage of our complimentary quarterly newsletter and webcast on a variety of risk management topics. Let's get started. You've probably heard the old saying about the shoemaker's children who had no shoes. If you look back 25 years, insurers whose primary business is to help individuals and organizations manage their risks were not always working systematically to manage their own risks. But losses that insurers experience from the dot-com crash, from hurricanes and earthquakes, and from the financial crisis in the first decade of this century cemented the idea that insurers generally needed to have very good risk management programs. Banks and insurers worked together to create the massive losses in mortgage securities that led to the global financial crisis. One of the responses for that was for the G20 heads of state of the 20 largest economies in the world to come forward and urge the adoption of better risk management practices in 2009. I believe this makes ERM the only management practice explicitly endorsed by the G20. It's a practice that has been widely adopted. As recently as May 1, 2023, Rating agency AM Best said that more than 90% of its rated insurers possessed ERM frameworks assessed at appropriate or better. But every once in a while, a new insurer is found or new ownership and or management of an existing insurer wants to develop a new ERM program for their business. They then might charge ahead with creating a new ERM program based on one template or another. But that is likely to lead to dissatisfaction. That process is likely to end the same way as if they decided to order a new suit or dress without specifying the size or the type of event that the clothing is is wanted for. For a really important event, people will often want to get a suit or dress that has been personally fitted to them. And I've even noticed that many folks will want to pick out their own style of dress or suit from a number of choices, even if those choices are all appropriate to the type of event they're going to. ERM is just the same. It makes sense to have the ERM program fitted to the size as well as to the style and objectives of the company. Larger companies will need to have a formal program with more rules and reports. Various parts of larger companies might not be in the same building or even in the same city, making effective communication an important consideration. In smaller companies, all of the folks who need to know about ERM might see each other at lunch several times a week, if not always passing each other in the hallways of the company. But differences among style and objectives make for even more differences in risk management programs. 
We have observed quite a large number of insurer ERM programs and have seen at least a dozen different primary objectives, often paired with secondary and tertiary objectives, off the same risk. Sometimes these different objectives lead to entirely different choices of ERM activities, but more often companies with different objectives might choose to take up the same activities but attribute high importance to one or several of those chosen activities and lower importance to others in all different combinations. Over time, which objectives are seen to be important to an insurer will vary, sometimes because of varying past or future expected experiences, but other times because of changes in thinking about a particular type of activity or management philosophy. Think of current business reactions to ESG, that's environmental, social, and governance, and the thinking about shareholder value versus stakeholder value, both ideas, the reaction to which and the understanding of which have changed drastically over time. We asked our 300 subscribers to the Actual Risk Management Newsletter about their priorities regarding ERM objectives, asking for help to rank the 12 possibilities that we have seen. Here are their choices for the top seven, which were seen as a higher priority by a majority of the respondents. Number seven, compliance with regulatory and rating agency requirement. This is the objective that we have heard the most often over the years. Requirements of rating agencies and regulators are significant and require plenty of work to support. However, many experienced chief risk officers have admitted that risk management information created to satisfy an outside voice will rarely be used by management to drive important decisions. Number six was adaptability and resilience, being ready for the next crisis or major loss event. This objective was new for many, initiated following the COVID-19 pandemic. That event showed us all how something unexpected can seem to come out of nowhere and turn everything on its head. With 2020 hindsight, having more adaptability and resilience would have resulted in a real leg up on competitors who started out on their heels. Number five was consistency of risk taking and mitigation uh, in the area of, of policing or controlling of, of risk management. This is an important role that risk managers do not usually like doing, since it often makes them unpopular with the business management folks. The three lines of defense model for ERM relegates this to the auditors and takes it out of the uh, arena of the risk managers. But whether risk managers like it or not, this is something that is a high priority activity in many insurers. If this important role is passed to auditors, that is likely to end up making the risk management function less important in the eyes of top management. Number four was transparency of risk taking and mitigation, that is risk reporting. This is another fundamental risk management activity that supports the idea of the risk control cycle. Reporting on risk taking and mitigation would include a comparison of the actual activity to a risk management plan. The risk management plan will clearly state intentions regarding risk taking and mitigations consistent with a business plan, and the risk reporting can track actual activity compared to that plan. Risk limits provide a systematic approach to identifying situations where the risk manager needs to draw attention to risk-taking that is approaching or has gone significantly beyond the plan. Now we're into the top three. Number three was to keep the company fully diversified. 
by avoiding risk concentrations and balancing across risks. While diversification is the cornerstone of the insurance business, it becomes a strategic imperative during chaotic times when the future seems less predictable. Insurers today, by rating this objective so high, seem to be more concerned with surviving their risks and less with exploiting them. Interest in this objective could wane once the environment starts to seem more stable. Number two was alignment of risk and strategy. At least half of insurers that we've talked to will say that they want this alignment explicitly stated in their risk appetite statement. With an ERM program that produces a reliable and consistent measure of risk, an insurer can create a risk profile that then allows company planners to see whether corporate priorities are aligned with the risk profile, whether growth of risk is supporting the highest priority, or if risk growth is supporting the high-risk, low-priority endeavors. And now, number one, the highest priority uh, objective was identifying, measuring, and monitoring risk. Everything needs to start somewhere, and this trio of risk management practices is in many ways the very lightest touch way to start an ERM program. These three practices can be added almost totally without any impact on the existing operation of the insurers. It's the risk management system standing apart from the business and observing it. It is, however, not going to have much impact on the risk-taking of the firm. So it is not a failure of ERM if a company with this as its primary ERM objective still experiences unexpected, outsized losses. If you are choosing this as your priority for a new ERM program, you need to keep looking at the items above to see if there's anything else that might have a more substantial impact that you can imagine adding to your list of ERM priorities. Those were half, uh, seven of the 12 priorities that we asked folks about. What were the other five? Uh, well, um, those other ERM pri priorities are things that we've heard over the years, but they're not seen as high priority today uh, in our poll. Uh, and, and those five things were taking, uh, having ERM taking a major role in capital budgeting, having ERM participating in strategic planning, ERM working to help the company get better returns for risk-taking, and having ERM support growth and innovation, and then finally having ERM assure that prices for insurance products sold are adequate for the risk-taking and assisting with due diligence for acquisitions. I, and, and as a final comment, I'll just mention that this list almost exactly describes a risk management role that I had uh, once many decades ago inside of an insurer. Before we move on to part two of today's podcast, we want to tell you about ARM's ERM Advisory Services. Our ERM advisory team, led by Dave Ingram and myself, Max Rudolph, are available to provide a wide range of support to your enterprise risk management program. We're happy to discuss your situation and how we might provide you with the help that you need to move forward, drawn from our decades of experience working with insurer ERM programs. So Dave, sometimes the size of an insurer can make a difference in the approach to ERM. What, what are some other drivers of differences in ERM programs? 
Oh, well, there's a number of them. What products a company sells makes a big difference. You know, some products are customized, uh, wholesale, uh, commercial type products. Other products are retail, individual, and standardized products. You get different size of transactions and different degrees of oversight needed for a standardized product with, with lots and lots of of small sales, uh, you, you need a different kind of oversight than you need for customized large ticket items. And then again, on the other side, you often see a company that does those small transactions uh, on the liability side doing large investment transactions. So that company will need some of the, the large transaction type ERM and some of the small transaction type. Uh, so you may find in that company that having the same style of risk management for your assets and your liabilities doesn't necessarily make sense. Staff experience is another uh, is another uh, driver of differences in ERM programs. Interestingly, what I've seen is that experienced staff are often resistant to ERM. They think that they can they can uh, control the risk just fine, and they always have. And, and so they don't need somebody from outside overlooking what they're doing. That's an interesting wrinkle. Um, you'd think it you know, might be easier with experienced staff, but often not so. Uh, regulatory environment makes a difference too. Uh, certainly, you know, uh, in, in some places, the regulator has very particular ideas about what an ERM program ought to be. The history of performance in the company may, may cause them to make different choices for the ERM program as well. If, if the company's historic performance has been rather irregular, rather volatile, fluctuating all over the place, they may have a toleration for those fluctuations that, that another company that doesn't have a history of fluctuations won't have. And so they'll have different degrees, ranges, a degree of freedom around their risk limits. So, so that a company that's used to a lot of volatility may be quite fine having uh, risk limits that are 50% higher than where they expect the risk to be, whereas some company with no such history might want to have risk limits that are 10% higher than the risk level they expect to have. And then certainly there's the, the degree to which rating agencies, and, and I, I think I already said regulators, have an opinion on how the ERM should, should be done in a company. So lots of things. Uh, opinions and experience of board members. I've, I've seen companies where a board member is continually trying asking, well, why isn't the risk management program here like the risk management company where I work or like how it is on the other board that I'm on? So this was a, a survey. And, and why do you think that the lower priority objectives rank so low in, in the survey at this point in time? We mentioned that, you know, what the what the top items were in the survey, uh, the ones on the bottom, that was a shock to me, the ones that showed up on the bottom, because my first uh, experience working in uh, what I thought to be risk management at the time, the things that I was doing were mostly the things that are on the bottom of that list. I, I had a major role in capital management because I, I was the person that did the uh, calculations of what the, the capital allocation needed to be based on the risks of the different business units. Getting better returns for risk taking and assuring prices for insurance sold were adequate for the risk. Those were two of the jobs that I had that uh, when a 
a new product was proposed in that company, they had to review the pricing with me as the risk management person. And they had to demonstrate to me that that they were assessing their risk in a standard manner and that the returns they were getting were at least up to the company standards for return on risk. And and supporting growth and innovation, it, it I, I did work with the people that were developing new products all the time to try and make sure that the products they developed weren't ones that uh, kind of ignored the risk of the product. Uh, so it made sure that when when they did try and innovate, uh, their their innovations were in, in things that that were within the company's risk appetite. Uh, due diligence for acquisitions. I didn't do that in my risk management job, but I did it in a consulting position where I've, I've done all those things and they're low priority. Well, why would they be low priority? I, I think it's a, it's it's what I would call the risk environment has shifted. Because of the pandemic, people think of the world as being very uncertain, and it certainly has been for several years now. Uh, and and we're, we're coming out of that. Uh, we've come out of it with some financial experiences that are different than what we've had in 40 years with with the inflation we've had, for instance. A lot of the things that I did were things that were intensely related to having an ability to to do a very specific uh, evaluation of risk. And if you think that the world's uncertain, you, you, you wanna rely a lot less on careful measurement of risk because you think it might be wrong. That's interesting. With everything, there's both a learning curve and a list of practices that that build on each other. Do you anticipate that some of these activities that are lower priorities today uh, will become more common as practices mature or or just cycle? I'm a, I'm a believer in the cycle idea uh, rather than. I mean, there there is certainly a a maturity level thing too, that that you have to mature to a level of understanding and a level of capabilities where you could do the things uh, and you could understand what things need to be done. But uh, once you get to a certain level of of competence in this, then it really has to do with what the environment, the things that required pretty high reliance on on calculations of risk, those will come back into favor uh, when we've had a moderate environment and and uh, we'll have a moderate environment again. and that's interesting. the The second ranked practice on the, is the alignment of risk and strategy. dave, you've you've talked about explicitly including this as you implement a risk appetite statement. Can you provide an example of how this could be done? One of the ways you align it with strategy is in terms of, how, how much capital you expect to have for, for a certain amount of risk taking. And, and different companies have intentions to hold higher or lower amounts of capital compared to their risk. But the other thing is in terms of uh, setting risk limits and setting mitigation programs for different risks. When, when I had that job that I was talking about earlier, one of the, one of the things that I noticed before I, ha- before I was given that job uh, was that the company did not have a systematic approach to how they set up the risk management practices for different products. That it, that it seemed to be almost something that was a, a lower level decision made by a middle management person as to how, how they wanted to manage the risk that came by their desk or their unit. Uh, so aligning risk and strategy means that if, if you have a product that is something the company thinks of as its future, as the, the big growth product, 
uh, that you don't have somebody in the middle of the uh, uh, of the chain of processing that's going to squeeze down on that and kill the product. You, you want to make sure that throughout your company that you are allowing yourself to take the risks that, that you plan strategically to take. That does require this whole ERM idea. It does require that the, the way you're doing the risk management needs to be transparent. And so that, that's, a, that's a big thing that, that allows you to have your risk and strategy aligned is, is transparency. Priorities for ERM programs range from identifying risks to aligning strategy. Regulatory requirements vary by size of company and company practices are unique. These practices are likely to cycle and mature over time. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Crossing Thin Ice, presented by Actuarial Risk Management. If you found it valuable, please like, subscribe, and share with your colleagues. Music